Morning, church. How are we doing today? Good. My name's John. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff. We are making our way through the book of Colossians this summer in our Greater Than series. As I was prepping this week, I was, uh, something came to my mind, a verse came to my mind in light of our, our passage, our, our piece of scripture, our text this morning. I thought I'd share it with you uh, this morning. It's uh, 2 Peter. It's in, it's in uh, the book of 2 Peter. It's chapter 3, verse 16. Peter is writing here about the apostle Paul. He says he, and he's talking about Paul, Paul, the guy that wrote the letter to the Colossians that we are studying this summer. He says, Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. It, you can laugh at that. That's, that's, that's Peter writing in the Holy Scripture that Paul's got some stuff in his letters that's a little hard to understand. So I, I don't know about you, but I find some comfort in that. Clearly, not all of Scripture is difficult. Not all of Scripture is hard to understand. The vast majority of God's Word is, is easy to understand, to engage with. You, you don't need a degree, a PhD. You don't need a special decoder ring. You don't need something, you know, uh, special about you to understand and apply God's Word. But at the same time, like Peter tells us, there are times when we get into some parts of Scripture that can be a little bit difficult to really understand what's exactly going on and how we apply it to our lives. It's no surprise that we run into one of those this morning as we wrap up the first chapter of Colossians. So let me read the scripture for us this morning, and then we're going to do some work going through the passage together. I'm not going to go really verse by verse. I'm going to kind of mix it up a little bit, but we're going to go through the passage together, and we're going to work to make some applications to our lives, all right? Sound good? So let's go ahead and read the scripture. I'll read it. You can follow along either in your copy of the scriptures, or it'll be on the screen behind me. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Okay, we're going to take verse 24. 
the first verse, we're going to kind of set it aside here for a second. We're going to come back to it here in a moment. What I want to do first is talk a little bit about verses 24 through 28, or sorry, 25 through 28. Paul is talking about mysteries here. He's talking about hidden things. You can get kind of confused, like what what are you talking about here, Paul? What, what's really going on? And it, it's actually a little bit more simple than Paul's words make it sound. What Paul is talking about here, what he's saying is that there's this mystery that's been revealed to him and that he's been commissioned to present this mystery. And that mystery is that God had intended from the very beginning of God's plan to include the Gentiles in his family. This is the mystery that, that Paul now has, has, has been revealed to Paul and Paul is now commissioned to share with the world. Now, Christ has, has come, so the, the plan, the mystery of including all the Gentiles is no longer hidden. It's clear. Christ has come. Christ has revealed himself. Christ, there's no longer these dividing lines that we, ha- we have in the Old Testament on ethnic lines and racial lines and, s- and social lines. There's no longer these dividing lines anymore between Jew and Gentile, right? Christ has come. God's plan that was hidden has now been revealed and the Gentiles are included in the family of God. And what Paul is making really clear here is that this was the plan from the beginning, it wasn't like plan B. Sometimes in our minds or, or we hear things or we think of things, we think, okay, the Messiah came for the Jews. The Jews rejected him. God was kind of, you know, like scrambling. What do I do? And he came up with this plan to include the Gentiles. Well, if you're not going to do it, we'll give it to them. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that from the very beginning, God's family would include everyone. Anybody could be included in the family of God through Christ Jesus. Make sense? Tracking? Okay. So let's look at verse 24. This is the, dif- the most difficult verse here in our piece of scripture this morning. It's uh, where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning because although it's a little bit confusing to kind of understand exactly what Paul is saying and why he, he says what he says, why he writes this way, but I actually believe that there's some really, really powerful truth in here for us today. Some powerful truth for us to apply to our lives today. So let me read the verse one more time. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So we we learn here, first off, that Paul is suffering for the sake of the body of Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? The body of Jesus is what? The church, right. Christ is the head, the body is the church. So, so Paul says he's suffering on behalf of the body, on behalf of the church. Paul is suffering on behalf of Christ's body. And how is he suffering? Paul is where? He's in prison, right? Prison is not a happy place. Prison's not a great place. Prison's not where we choose to go. Paul is is suffering in prison on behalf of Christ's body. He's lost his freedom. He's lost his comforts, perhaps his health, his, his, the daily meals that he would enjoy. So Paul is suffering in prison on behalf of the church. 
Not only is he suffering, he says in this verse that he is rejoicing. He is rejoicing in that suffering. Then he writes, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. What on earth do you mean by that, Paul? What do you mean? See, we can read that verse and, and it can om- almost seem like Paul is saying that there's, there was something lacking in what Christ had done on the cross for our salvation, right? Like his ultimate affliction. It can, it can sound like what Paul is saying is that that suffering, that, those afflictions that Christ experienced on the cross, that somehow that wasn't enough. And that there's this filling up, this completion of those afflictions that, that must take place in us. Like it, can, it can sound like that's what Paul is talking about here. That we need to, to do something else. That maybe we need to, to suffer. Or we need to, to live a certain way. Or... or commit some certain acts or, or do something to, to fill up uh, what was remaining from the lack of Christ's afflictions for our salvation. For centuries, for centuries, this verse has been used to, to make the case that the cross wasn't enough to save us, that we need to, to add something to it by either suffering or paying an indulgence doing things like that to, to make up the difference from Christ's afflictions. But we need to be very clear here. We need to be really clear here that that is absolutely not what Paul is saying here. There is nothing lacking in what Christ did on the cross. There's nothing lacking in his death and his resurrection for our salvation. Nothing lack. There's nothing that we need to do to, to, to fill up the balance to make ourselves be saved, okay? When Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. There's nothing else we can do. There's nothing else we need to do. We aren't required to suffer. We aren't required to pay. We aren't required to do certain things, to check certain boxes in order to be saved. Christ's afflictions were enough for our salvation, So what is Paul saying? What is Paul saying here? Well, it's interesting because the historical interpretation of what Paul is talking about here, this this filling up in the flesh, what is lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions is what's been called the, the messianic woes. The messianic woes view and this view contends that, that Paul is loosely referring to this, this phrase known as Christ's afflictions or the Messiah's afflictions or the, the Messiah's woes. And that phrase, okay, we're going to kind of nerd out a little bit here. And I know you guys are like, what are we talking about? All right. I, I have to tell you this stuff because then I have to tell you what really is going on. Okay, so what people were saying is that there's this, it comes from Jewish apocalyptic writing in this book called the First Enoch. 
all right, where people say that what Paul is talking to, what Paul is talking about here is this, this known phrase in, the, in Jewish apocalyptic writing, these messianic woes or the Messiah's woes. And what that means is that, is that for, for Jesus to come back, that there was this amount of suffering that needed to take place. To move us from this age to the age to come, there needed to be this this amount of suffering that took place, that Jesus prescribed to the church and to Christians this amount of work or amount of suffering that had to take place. And when that suffering took place, when, when the balance, like there was a balance sheet, and when the balance was paid, then Christ would come back. And so historically, people have said what Paul is saying here is that his suffering helps pay down some of that balance, the prescribed balance that the church needed to suffer, that Christians needed to suffer. And Paul even says, I'm I'm suffering for your sake on your behalf. So he's actually, what people would say is that Paul is actually not only just paying down some of the suffering, he's actually paying down some of the suffering that the church in Colossae owes as well. And this has been the historical understanding and interpretation of what is going on here. And it's interesting. It's an interesting interpretation. We don't really have anywhere else in Scripture that this, there's a couple of places that you can make the argument that this is what is going on. And it's an interesting interpretation, but I don't think that that is actually what Paul is saying here. I don't think that that is what Paul is teaching here. What I think, and I'm not, a, I'm not alone. It's not like I came up with this on my own completely, right? But what I think Paul is doing here is he's, he's linking the mission and the ministry and the work that the followers of Jesus do with the ministry and the suffering and the work that Christ did and Christ does, okay? I don't think that Paul is teaching this about messianic woes. I think what Paul is doing is linking the mission and the ministry and the work of the followers of Jesus with the mission and the ministry and the work of Jesus, namely in the sufferings and sacrifices of Jesus not for salvation, not for redemption, but for mission, but for mission. His thoughts here are about our unity with Christ. Our unity as followers of Jesus with Jesus, our unity with Christ. Paul has this expression about us being unified, Christ being in us, us being in Christ throughout his letter. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing here. Okay, so follow me here a little bit. So, so Christians have died and been buried with Christ, right? We hear that phrase, Christians have died and been buried with Christ. That is our, our old self, right? Our sinful self has been has died and been buried with Christ and our new self rises with Christ, okay? So we die with Christ and we are raised with Christ and then we live with Christ. So, so we die, our old self dies, our new self 
comes to life. We, we are raised with Christ and we, we live with Christ. We are no longer dead. We are alive. We walk in Christ, Christ in us. So as Christians, we share, these are phrases we hear, right? And we don't always understand what they mean, but we, we share in the death of Christ. We share in the resurrection of Christ. And we share in the life of Christ. And we share in his sufferings. The, the life of Christ, the mission of Christ, we share in that as we follow Jesus. I'm going to continue to kind of unpack this because I, I can see some of you have a look on your face of like, I don't know what you're talking about. Let's look at a couple other verses to help us. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. Peter writes this, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. How about Philippians 3, verse 10? I want to know Christ. This is Paul writing. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. How about another one? 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So you, we follow Christ's example. We participate in the sufferings of Christ. Becoming like him, suffering like him, like him in death, like him in resurrection, like him in life, like him with him in his sufferings. So I would contend that as Paul is making this statement, that he is reflecting deeply on this conviction that he has, this conviction that he has that we are with and we are in and we suffer with Christ. So he suffers with Christ. He suffers for Christ. And he suffers as a minister and a representation of Christ. Christ lives in him and he serves in Christ's place as one who died in him and who lives for him. So my point here is it's, it's not a huge jump for Paul in the text and, and what we read this morning to make the case that, that we are, are suffering, that we are unified with Christ. Paul is emphasizing our unity with Christ in suffering for the sake of the good news for all people. So we are, Christ is suffering. Christ suffered and Christ died so that people could know him and be saved. And, and, he say, and Paul is saying, we are with Christ in that. So we suffer and we work and we strain and we sacrifice for the sake of the good news. You guys tracking? It's a little bit 
confusing. So we're, we're here, and we're, we're going to kind of bring it, we're kind of bringing it down level by level by level, okay? So Paul, in this verse, is emphasizing our unity with Christ in suffering for the good news. His point here is that like Christ, we too should suffer for the gospel. The head suffered and the body suffered. So what, is, what does this look like? We're gonna, we're gonna keep going here. What does that look like? So first I would make the case that that's true by looking at the, the entire narrative of scripture where nearly every central figure in scripture from Old to New Testament suffered on behalf of God suffered on behalf of the kingdom, suffered on behalf of the cross, the kingdom, the mission. Nearly every major central figure from, from, the, gospel, from the biblical narrative for what God is doing, this, the story of God involves suffering. Adam suffered for God. Abraham suffered from God. Moses suffered an immense amount for God. Jacob's life is marked by suffering for God as he tried to listen and honor and obey. Job. Job suffered a little, right? Job suffered immensely. Immensely. And in his suffering, we learn to remain faithful. All of the prophets of God suffered rebuke, rejection, physically, all sorts of suffering. Prophets like Jeremiah, suffering for God for the sake of his people. King David suffered for God. Read the end, I won't get into it now, but read the end of King David's story. It's, it's difficult. The sun and all the things that happened to David. Of course, Jesus. Jesus suffered giving up his, his holy seat, coming down to earth for us, he suffered. The central theme of Paul's life and ministry is suffering. Paul was shipwrecked three times. One of the times he gets shipwrecked, he gets bit by a poisonous snake in the midst of all he's doing, traveling to, to share the gospel. All but two of Jesus' disciples suffered death as martyrs. For the gospel, Judas killed himself, and church history tells us that with John, <laughs> they tried to boil John alive, and he survived. And so, what did they do? They exiled him, where he writes the book of Re Revelation. All of the disciples of Christ suffered. The book of Acts is a, a manuscript about suffering, right, for the sake of the gospel. If you take and remove the parts of suffering and trials and sacrifice and tribulation from the book of Acts, you have like a tiny pamphlet. The book of Acts, the, the launch of the early church is about sacrifice and suffering and giving for the sake of the gospel. Beyond that, church history Church history is, is filled with saint after saint after saint and missionary after missionary after missionary who suffered, who gave up, who sacrificed for the sake of the gospel. 
even today, even today in our world right now, where the gospel is advancing the most is in places where people are suffering, meeting in secret, where making the decision to follow Jesus is a life or death decision. Not just one like, nah, today maybe I'll go to church, nah. No, like life or death decision. People sacrificing, giving, meeting in secret, facing daily persecution from family, friends, the government, all sorts of things. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says this. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, now you're all like, great. Woohoo! I'll be the first to admit that this is not a super exciting and really appealing sermon to deliver. But like, we can't ignore it. Like, we, it's in the text. We can't just skip over it and get to the, the stuff that makes us feel really encouraged and great and excited, okay? Like, there, it is in the text. <laughs> and this is not a fun message to deliver to the American church a, a, or a culture or a, a town or a city that's marked by our affluence and our comforts and our pursuit of those things, right? I mean, it's hard to say that suffering for the gospel, sacrificing and giving up, like that is the point. Like that is what we are to do. It is biblically what God calls us to do. And it's traditionally what Christians do. We're known as a people, our DNA as Christians throughout the gospel Throughout what scripture says, from the Old to the New Testament, is people who suffer, not people who get rich, not people who get comfortable. It's people who give and sacrifice, pour out their lives for the sake of the gospel. Guys, that's what we're known for. People who go through tremendous things in this life and hold on to Jesus, have a deep, enduring, patient, struggle through life, holding on to Jesus, being faithful to him, suffering on his behalf for the sake of the gospel. That's who we are. If you are following Jesus, that's what you signed up for. And church, I get it. You know what grows a church? Not this message. You know what grows a church? One that says, follow Jesus because you'll be healthy You'll be wealthy. All your problems will go away. He'll take care of you and, and you'll have a bigger house and a faster car and all the friends that you want, that you will be prosperous. That's the message that grows the church because no one wants to sign up to follow a guy from Galilee who suffered. No one wants to sign up to say, I want to be like that guy, giving it all up. Scripture says that we should live as what? Living sacrifices. That we, we take our life, we open our hands and we say, Jesus, use us. I want to be a living sacrifice for you. Our 
All right, in the midst of it all, right? In the midst of it all, it's not just suffering. It's like we have a purpose in it. We ha- we, when, when I talk about prosperity and health and wealth, there's certainly Christ with us, that there's peace in the midst of those things that we go through, that we are not alone. And I want to get to that in a minute, but let me, let me talk about why. Okay, so if, if that's what we're signing up for, if, if that's what we're known for, people giving up and sacrificing, why? I think there's, there's two things that I need to say before we get to the why. The first is what, I want to talk about what I mean by, by suffering. And there's, there's really two types. First, the primary suffering, and this is the suffering that Paul is talking about here, is, is the intentional and direct outward persecution that a professing Christian undergoes because of their faith. That intentional decisions we make, conversations we have, places we go, ways that we live that bring suffering, persecution into our lives. Physical suffering, going to prison, living in different areas and conditions that we're not comfortable in, giving beyond what is normal, sacrificially, generously giving, choosing the gospel instead of our own comforts and facing suffering and persecution and ridicule because of that. But I think it would be wrong to say that that is the only type of suffering that we do for the gospel. Because as much as there is this outward, intentional, direct persecution and suffering we face, Christians can also suffer for the sake of the gospel by the way that we handle and endure the inward suffering the, the suffering like, like disease and sickness and disappointment and relational troubles. The, the suffering of, of taking care of an, an aging parent or a special needs child. Suffering through anxiety and depression and, and, and marital stress and difficulty. It's sort of the inward suffering, the, the suffering that everyone in this world to some degree faces because of the the brokenness and the fallen world that we live in so why why are christians known why why do we engage why do we enter in why why is suffering what we're all about let me offer a couple things we're going to go over time this morning so why why suffer first First, we suffer so that others can know Jesus. We suffer not to be heroic, not for, for recognition, recognition, not for recognition, not to be a hero, not so that we get some more accolades. That's not why we suffer. Our suffering results in the salvation of others. When we suffer intentionally or when we suffer in the, the inward ways that I talked about because of this, bro- the way that we handle that suffering, the way we deal with that suffering can result in people being saved. 
Philippians 2 verse 17 says this, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. What Paul is saying here is if I offer my life and you receive the gospel, you get saved, that's cause for joy. There is a price to pay, but that's all right. The results are worth it. So when we choose to live lives that intentionally bring about suffering, persecution, the the kingdom advances through that. The kingdom can advance through that. People giving up comfort, what what the world tells us to pursue, God works through that. Be, Be encouraged that when you make those kinds of decisions, We send missionaries out of here, many of them to to live in very different and difficult situations. It is our true belief that God blesses that work and those efforts. And it's, it's not just there, it's here as well. When you give up and you sacrifice and you suffer and you, maybe some of you, you, you stand up in your, in your school where it is really difficult to live for Jesus and you put yourself out there and you face persecution and suffering Man, I believe that that Jesus can use that to further the kingdom of God. Our sacrifices and our suffering, the gospel advances through that. Secondly, I, I think we also share the gospel and the good news by the way that we handle the everyday difficult suffering and situations that come our way. I think that people can come to Christ when Christians live as an example of how you deal with the difficult things of life. Like how many of you have had a neighbor come over and and see what you do and what you're going through and and that's an example to them of how Christians live, that you hold on to Jesus and you remain faithful, saying that he is good in the midst of all that you're going through. That you move yourself to prayer in the midst of those very difficult things that are going on in your life. I believe that in both kinds of suffering, the gospel can advance. Paul talks about rejoicing here. Rejoicing in our suffering. When we say, God, you've, you've given me this trial, you've given me this suffering, And somehow, in some way, you're going to be glorified in it. Paul here, he he doesn't say that he's, he's rejoicing in spite of his sufferings, right? He's rejoicing in his sufferings. He doesn't just rejoice because the suffering has run its course and is over. He rejoices in the midst of it. Do we rejoice in the midst of of our suffering? Do we rejoice in the midst of our suffering? I love this verse in James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything doesn't say if, right? It says when, whenever. When you face trials of many kinds, you rejoice because 
the pure joy that you can experience in your sufferings. Let me be clear here. Let me be really clear when we talk about rejoicing in suffering because for some people that can, that can cause a lot of anger, a lot of confusion. Do, do we rejoice when cancer hits our home? Do we, do we rejoice when a terminal illness strikes? Do we rejoice when a child tragically passes away? Do we re- rejoice? Hey, everybody, I'm getting a divorce. Do we rejoice when difficulty like that comes our way when those terminal illnesses strike? No. I don't think we rejoice like that. I don't, I don't think we rejoice like that, but I do think, I do think that we do rejoice at the opportunity that we have for Jesus to grow us, to teach us, to use us in those situations. There might not be a public rejoicing, but in, in our prayer life, in, when we're connected with those who know God, we, we say things like, I'm going through something so incredibly difficult right now, but, but I am hopeful that God will use this situation in my life and for the furthering of the gospel. Finally, church, why suffer? Why, why this suffering? Finally, I, I would say this, that suffering encourages our faith and brings us closer to Christ. This, this is perhaps the most important part of our suffering. So as we suffer for the sake of the gospel, we, we join in Christ in his sufferings. We, we connect with Christ in a new and deeper way. We unify with him. And when we do that, we, we begin to understand what he was like, what his life was like, what it was like to, to live on mission for the kingdom of God. We get more clarity on what we should be concerned about. We get more clarity on, on how our character, what our character should be like and, and look like in this world. As, as we suffer and we, we unify with Christ, we should be changed. We should be more and more and more like him as we unify with him in the suffering for the sake of the gospel. We shouldn't grow angry and bitter and hard-hearted. We should grow more tender, gentle, love as we relate to him and we relate to others who are suffering as well that we don't, we don't get hard-hearted, angry, bitter, frustrated. We, we grow more like Jesus, gentle, loving, sacrificial. That's what suffering can do in our lives, that we grow more gracious with others. We, we grow more gracious with ourselves, and we grow more loving. Finally, as we close, let me read Colossians 1.29 because here's the thing is, is, is when we, we talk about suffering and we had to talk about, we had to take this opportunity to reflect on and talk about suffering because it's what Paul has for us in the text this morning. But I, I get it. I understand that as we talk about these things, it can raise our, our frustration. It can, it can raise some confusion. It can, it can raise some some challenge in our hearts of like, Jesus, why? 
Why am I going through that? Man, I look out in this room, and there are people suffering immensely in this room. There are, there are people in our lives that are they're, they're just carrying burdens that are overwhelming. And as a pastor, you hear about these things. These come to the church. People come here saying, help me. I'm, I am suffering immensely, relationally, physically, with illnesses. Prepping for this message was so hard because in my mind, I'm thinking of all the suffering that people in this room have endured and continue to endure. But they remain so faithful, guys. It is so beautiful to see people in this room that have gone through the things they've gone through, losing children, miscarriages, terminal illnesses, broken marriages, children who have wandered from the faith, job loss that's called financial ruin, drug addictions, people who have given up, sold their homes, moved far away for the sake of the gospel and have had challenges of their life, their safety for the sake of the gospel. Man, that's why it's, it's so good to be a part of a church where there's people like that living that way, going through those things and holding on to Jesus. And I realize when we talk about suffering, I get emotional because it's, man, it's like it's, it's there's so much of it, right? And so we need encouragement. I needed this encouragement this week. And I think you need this encouragement as we go through these things. Paul, in, in, in the end of his, this section of his letter, in verse 29, he writes, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. The point of this is we are, are not alone. We are not alone in our suffering. We are not alone with what we are going through. Paul is telling us here, and, and even in the verse before, he says, Christ in you. That Christ is in you. That we are unified with Christ. Dead, raised, walking with him. We are not alone. All the energy of Christ working in us. He gives us the strength, the endurance. He moves us to, to pray for, for healing in our suffering and relief in our suffering. We do not go through this alone. So we suffer with Christ. He is in us. Nothing separates us from the love of God. Remember, Jesus is our comfort in times of great trials. He does not leave us or forsake us. He strengthens us and upholds us with his powerful hand. He fills us, fills us up, and walks with us. He knows us and what we are going through. He loves us in the midst of it. Let's pray. Man, God, you're good. Thank you for your word today, Lord. I thank you for the, the power of your word, what it's done in my life, what it does in the life of the people in this room, Lord. I pray that 
we will be encouraged, strengthened by what we've heard from your word today. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.